you know, we're just two tanned guys sitting here right now. We are. We yeah. both have nice summer tans going. I mean, you're like... Have a nice summer tan? You're not translucent. No, I've, I've got a nice golden for you, hue. For you, you've got a, a golden hue. I'll give you that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You have a... Mm, crisp marshmallow hue right now. <laughs> is that what that is? Yes, a browned marshmallow <laughs> hue. This weekend, we went out on a friend's boat. We did some tubing. Yeah. We did a little wakeboarding. How are your eyes feeling? I know that you took you wiped out on the oh, tube and yeah. said you felt the water between your or behind your eyeballs. Well, I felt like in my eyelids, like it ran between my eyes and my eyelids. Yeah, it feels fine now. Then I just felt like somebody hit me really hard and went in each eye consecutively. Two days after spending four, five, six hours out on the water tubing and doing those other water sports, I think I might have been as sore as my first day of jujitsu. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got out of bed and my neck hurt. I stretched and my back muscles hurt from stretching my arms out and holding each handle of the inner tube. <laughs> my chest was sore. For, for me, it was really just my chest more than anything else. Like I was, I was, I felt a little stiff here and there, but I mean like sore, sore was my left knee and my chest. I think for grip exercises for jujitsu, we should start doing tubing exercises. We should. That's a great exercise yeah, to keep fun. your grip that's strong. Too. You're supporting your whole weight mm -hmm. being thrown by centripetal force. Yep. I remember that term from school. Good. <laughs> yeah. I was hoping for more of like a, not a clap, but. Well, I mean, I just assumed everybody knew that. <laughs> You're in America. Why would you assume that? I'm excited about this episode. I, I think you are too, because when I texted you and said, hey, what do you think about doing our BJJ Giants episode on Henzo? I think your response was, this is going to have to be a two-parter. Absolutely. <laughs> Hashtag Henzo for president. What is it about Henzo that just makes people love him? He's, he's like, he's just... He's one. He's super charismatic, right? So like you're automatically drawn to him. Mm -hmm. And then you know he's he's funny. He's outgoing. He's loud. You know he makes you feel like you're his best friend, even though you may be somebody who he will never see again. You know he doesn't treat anybody poorly. You know he's not rude. He doesn't think less of anybody. He's he's just happy to have an interaction with people. But then he has this side where he can just flip this switch. Well, he, yeah, he's also a savage. He's like a Quentin Tarantino movie. He's yeah. critically acclaimed. He can be hilarious, but violent. dark and violent yeah. and tough. He's this package of a larger-than-life guy who has grit, who has a great sense of humor. There's a lot of... What's nice about him is there's so much video footage of either his fights or his training or him just talking. Everybody wants to be around him, man. Yeah. 
and he has no problem just letting someone film him and just like spitball. I, he could probably be a comedian if he wanted to. He could. He's he, he's an entertainer for yeah, sure. He could be. He could definitely do like what Mike Tyson, you know, did with like his comedy tour. Mm-hmm. Or like after you know a one man show. Oh, that would be great. No, like when he did his tour, you know, talking about his life. Yeah, and, that was like a one man yeah, show. Right, right. He he would be a fantastic candidate for a one yeah. one man show. I would pay. I would pay a hundred dollars, and not, but not a penny more. No, I'd, I'd pay a little bit more just to hear his life stories. Oh, he's got so many. It's tough to figure out where to start with him. So let's just go to the beginning. <laughs> let's go to the beginning and work our way from there. He is the grandson of Carlos Gracie. Correct. His father, Hobson. Yep. What was interesting was I, I was watching. If you want to see a lot of cool footage on him and him talking about a lot of different stuff that happened in his life, there was a good documentary I was watching on YouTube. I think it was called Henzo Gracie Legacy. That's yeah, a good one. It's about an hour and a half, hour and 20 minutes. And he talks about his life. He talks about his fights. So he grows up in Rio. Yep. Yep. Well, you've been to Rio. It's a gigantic city, you know. Right. Um, so yeah, he, he grew up in Rio, um, different neighborhoods, you know, family is very large and there's very, there's a bunch of different neighborhoods that he, you know, uh, lived throughout his time in Rio. Stories of him as a, as a child I heard through other family members, right? I mean, he, he is in the same generation as I am, but he is, you know, age wise, he's a generation older than me, right? Mm-hmm. He's, you know, he could be, he's my parents age. Stories I heard of him when he was in Brazil, when he was growing up, is that he, he was fearless. He was almost fearless to the point of being reckless. Um, but always in a, in, in, in a good way. Not reckless as in picking fights to pick fights, but picking fights or, because he felt like he needed to, to make a stand or to protect somebody or to stand up for somebody that couldn't stand up for themselves. But he also got into a lot of them. <laughs> When was the first big event that brought him to people's attention? What was like the Henzo event that people oh, said, oh, man. who's this Gracie? Because, I mean, to make a name for yourself as a Gracie, or set yourself apart from the other Gracies, you, you have to do a lot. Because the name is so big, to get out from that shadow, you're right. going to have to right, do right. something impressive. Um, I think I think in America, what brought him to the front view for everybody to see was his fight with BJ Penn in Hawaii. I think that's what in America made him... Stand out, stand out as a a completely different Gracie from just oh it's somebody related to Hoist made him set up as his own Grace. I think in America was his fight with BJ Penn, uh, which was highly publicized at the time because of the inner family you know issues there. What's the context of that? Why was that a big well, uh, um, big thing for people at the time? Because because Penn ultimately BJ Penn you know a, lot, a vast majority of his training was done through black belts that were directly from Half and Henzo. And he left, he split off, he left Half, And Penn made some claims, and his instructor that left Half with Penn made some claims that Penn, Penn's jiu-jitsu is better than, than Gracie's jiu-jitsu. And guys like Half, Henzo, Hyan, you know, they don't, they're kind of like Khabib and McGregor. You can talk shit. That's fair. And they'll talk shit back, but you gotta understand that for them, it's not for money. They're, if you're talking shit to them, it's personal and it will be dealt with. It's know? not entertainment. No, <laughs> no, you don't entertain, you, you know, watch TV for as far as they're concerned, you know? Mm-hmm. So, 
Um, so then the beef got brought up of, hey, this guy's talking trash about you and your brothers or insinuating things about you and your brothers. I wasn't around at the time to see or hear firsthand what the comments were made and things like that. But And then they one they duked it out. And Penn at the time was already known as a prodigy and he was already this accomplished MMA fighter. He was this accomplished jiu-jitsu fighter. People in America knew him. He was like he was known as the first American to get to win the world tournament, right? So he he was somebody that was a star for Americans in a foreign sport, mm-hmm. you know. And Hanzo had no problem stepping up. Jiu-jitsu competition or was it a MMA fight? Oh no, it was an MMA fight. Okay. Oh yeah, they duked it out. Yeah. Result. Pen one. I was like a referee's decision. I don't remember the record that you know the scorecards or anything like that, but. Mm. Um, yeah, but Penn won, and it wasn't like Hanzo got beat up. I think he just, he was hard to deal with, and he was, it was in Hawaii, he was American. I mean, there's all these factors that come into play, and it sells better. And I'm not saying that he didn't beat Hanzo. Hanzo will never shy away from saying, like, if he lost a match, he lost a match. So yeah. I won't sugarcoat it either, you know, but there, there are factors involved. He started, I think, his MMA or Valley Tudo stuff around 97 or so. What was his jiu-jitsu competitive career like up until that point? I think Hanzo competed in anything he could. The dude, I mean, most people don't know this, the dude is like an addict when it comes to like backgammon. Like anything competitive. I saw pick, a video of that. Pick anything. I mean, ping pong. Mm-hmm. Like if you tell him that you're better than him at ping pong, you guys are going to play ping pong until somebody wins. Like, And, and so... I, I, again, I don't know his record as in like how many tournaments he fought, when did he fight, you know. I, I know that he was competitive his whole life. He's still competitive today. He just fought like last year, the year before, yeah. So my guess is he competed his entire life on anything mm-hmm. he could. And I believe a lot of it may not have been necessarily at a tournament. It could have been at fights. It could have been, you know, in MMA, in the gym, you know, gym invasions and things like that. I'll separate the jiu-jitsu competitions and the MMA fights. Let's first look at his MMA fights. I, I, I watched some footage of a large fight where he was going against a luta... Luta livre. Luta livre. Yeah, I got it. Nailed it. And Better than your other attempts. But yeah. <laughs> it's a wild fight, both in the ring and also around it there are oh, guys oh. <laughs> you know which one i'm talking I know exactly about what you're talking about oh it, yeah that was a huge huge thing oh yeah dude uh-huh. there are guys all around the imagine like an mma fat fight now with the cage and instead of having your two or three coaches up like calling from the other side you have enough people to cover the entire fence and they're like hanging over oh, yeah. and shouting and you can see in the videos when Henzo's on the ground they're kicking him through the mm-hmm. fence yeah people don't realize like in America everything is so like for lack of a better word professional in the sense of you know if we want to fight we will talk a lot of shit we will show up the day of will fight but at the end of the day we're both going in and out of that ring knowing that it was ultimately just a paycheck and and we're just puppets for people to you know watch at the end of the day we're still like old-fashioned duels like you want to fight me sir well 
Hold on, I'll let's set up. Pull out your calendar. Right. When are you ready? We'll right. do it in. We'll do it in two weeks. <laughs> Perfect. Where you know in Brazil, if you if you talk like if you talk shit, you know, it, it's not about a paycheck. The money doesn't even really matter. It's about you know your honor and you you're defending that honor. You're defending what you stand for. So when a guy talks trash about jujitsu or about you or your family or your family and jujitsu, you know you're going to stand up for something. And then if he brings his friends, you're going to bring your friends. Mm -hmm. And if his friends jump in, your friends are going to jump in, you know? And, and there's, there's no question, you know, if, if you don't jump in, you're not his friend. Well, and it's the context. I think of that fight also was, it was more than just these two guys fighting. It was jujitsu versus luta libre, which, which is already a huge rivalry. Yeah, can you explain that a little bit for people so, who aren't familiar um, with it? So luta libre is essentially, for lack of a better word, is is it's MMA, right? Uh, uh, for for lack of a better explanation, but essentially they were the freestyle wrestlers. That's essentially what luta libre means is freestyle. They did everything, right? They they punched, they kicked, they elbowed, they need, they did takedowns, they did submissions, um, but all very crude and rudimentary. Like there wasn't like they were ex experts at Muay Thai or experts at wrestling or experts at Jiu-Jitsu. They were if catch as catch can. It what catch as catch can is for wrestling. Luta Livre is catch as catch can for MMA. They did whatever they could to do damage. Sometimes effective, sometimes not effective. But we just add more power to it and see what happens. Mm. And, you know, when my family started becoming famous in Brazil, they started making the claims that Jiu-Jitsu was the most efficient form of combat, that they could beat anybody, that they could, you know, duke it out. The only people that would readily accept the challenges were the Luta Livre guys because they were the tough and rough, you know, beat you up kind of guys and my family had no problem stepping up because they believed in what they were you know trying to prove so those guys had more of a foothold early on do you know when that started to get popular was that well i think i think they kind of grew together i think as people you know i you mean were the batman to each other's joker yeah yeah that's a good way of putting it you know <laughs> I mean, you look at jiu-jitsu, jiu-jitsu at the very, very beginning was a very elitist thing. Brazilian jiu-jitsu was, you know, both Carlos and my grandfather early on did not believe in group classes. They believed it, it took a lot of attention to get people to get better. So private classes are preferred. If there were group classes, they were very, very small. They were expensive. They were costly. The uniforms, you know, it, it involved a certain class of people to attend that basically people could afford to where the Luta Lever guys, they're like, you're tough, prove it, <laughs> you know? And they took anybody, oh, you're dirty, you haven't showered, that's okay too, you know? And, and I think it created animosity where they might've thought that the Gracies in their clean uniforms and the school and this now, they were better, they're superior, they're charging for things and they weren't even really that good, right? And then the Gracies probably thought, hey, those guys think they, they can hang, but they can't, you know, and look at them. They're a bunch of barbarians. These ruffians. Know? Right, right. And, 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 you know, and it's a little shit like that that stirs the pot. And then somebody talks out of place and one side or the other takes offense. And as one gets bigger, the other one does whatever he can to also get bigger. And it becomes this arms race for who's the best fighting system. Well, it goes from, I mean, as you read through a lot of different jujitsu figures, 
histories. There are so many of them who they fought this Lucha Libre guy, and and oh, you yeah. see that it's just going from the like early, day, very early days of jujitsu all the way through. Man, I don't know, eighties, nineties. Oh yeah, late eighties, early nineties, even. Yeah. Do you think MMA just absorbed Lucha Libre? Because I don't hear anything about that anymore. I, I think I think it's not a sustainable form of training if um so uh anderson silva do you know what um his first school that he came out of was Mm-mm. it's called the uh, shoot box right oh, okay. means, i've heard of that literally means kickboxing right um out of that school you had um you had shogun you had his brother ninja you had barbara streisand sure <laughs> Um, you had Nino Shembri, you had Evander Le Silva, Cyborg, you know, all these incredible, tough, you know, guys and girls came out of that school. But that school no longer is even on the map as far as the competitive MMA world because the way that they would train was not conducive to being sustainable you know what i mean like if you if you look up interviews with nino i've talked to him about it and and if you look up interviews with any of those guys about the their old and golden days and nino will tell you that if there wasn't a few people knocked out every day and and or bleeding and or severely hurt every day then the training was a failure oh god and like these guys were trying to beat the shit out of each other they were trying to break each other but you know what happened for about five years, those guys owned the MMA world. You know, Nino, Shogun, Vanderlei Silva, they all destroyed everybody in Japan. And then they got injured, they quit training, they moved to different venues, they weren't as successful in different venues because being in different venues meant further time away from Brazil, less time training at home. They had a hard time adjusting to the rule set because other venues weren't as free with the rules you know in pride you could head stomp and you know and mm-hmm. then you couldn't do that in ufc and things like that so it's it's my guess is a lot of what happened to the delivery is they had to change their training methodology in order to be sustainable in order to grow a business and keep people coming in and learning you had to, you have to make it safe and controlled and friendly enough and if you do that you take their rough element out all you have left is okay technique Mm -hmm. and then there's better schools if you're looking to do one or the other okay going back to this 97 fight you have henzo paired against one of these guys i don't remember the name of the guy he was going against i don't remember either but i know exactly what the fight you're you're talking about there's gunshots even the the fight (laughs) is uh going on i remember i saw henzo saying that the guy felt like he was just oiled up and couldn't really get a hold of them but they're fighting they're fighting and then at some point the ref separates them one of the guys on the outside of the rings puts his head over and is shouting something and then just punches him in the face and shit man you're gonna get smacked the guy starts to (laughs) fall back and then one of the other gracies pulls the guy down off the side of the i pulled him down okay and at that point chaos ensues oh yeah like imagine the khabib mcgregor fight times 
a hundred. <laughs> Everyone just starts fighting. It, it just goes on for a while. They go. He's, it goes out to like the streets and like you oh, said, there's, yeah. there's gunshots. Gunshots. Are, yeah, oh yeah. That would be that would be really tough to be fighting in that kind of environment because MMA fighting now already would be tremendously difficult. I can't imagine how much stress and pressure goes with that. You have but the it, relief of knowing you're safe, and when you come out of there, you have a paycheck. Yes. You know as soon as the ref stops things. It's over. You're done. You can go back to the locker room. But in this environment, you, it's the animosity and the danger is just palpable. You can see that it just is on the, it's walking the razor's <laughs> edge of just violence everywhere. So to, to be forged in those fires, it's no wonder that when he you see him go on to fight in like Japan, that it doesn't seem to stress him well, out at I all. I don't think Hanzo has ever been scared to fight anybody. I, I think, you know, one of the one of my favorite sayings from Hanzo is, you know, he says, uh, fighting is the best thing a man can do for his spirit, for his soul. There's a lot of depth to that. There's one, that reminded me of one other quote he said. What's that? He, he was talking about one of those fights and he said he like gave it everything. And he goes, I'm going to die shitting myself like everyone else, but at least I'll like truly know who I am. <laughs> right. right, It's true. That's one way to look at it. <laughs> you know, I think, I think Hansel believes like, like the whole statement of fighting is the best thing a man can, can do for his soul. It can have for his soul, you know? Okay. At a top level, you can be like, that's like a very romanticized way of saying, just be tough and fight, you know, don't be afraid. But there's a lot of depth to that, right? If you think about it, it, he's not necessarily specifying fighting in a cage or fighting in MMA or fighting in jiu-jitsu or fighting in a gang. He's talking about fighting. And I think he takes that approach to everything. He wants to be good at something. He's going to fight tooth and nail to be good at something. And Mm -hmm. he is perfectly content with doing that. And any challenge that comes up to him falls back to that same pattern of, I can do it. I can fight hard enough and I can beat that person, right? And if I can't, then I'll fight harder, you know, for longer, come back and do it again. It's tough to it's tough to fight a guy who won't quit and isn't necessarily scared of you. Right. But speaking of won't quit, if if you jump ahead to one of his other huge fights, Sakuraba. Sakuraba, yeah. That was another big one. Yeah, a lot of animosity there too. Right. Can you explain why there was animosity? Yeah. So, um, Sakuraba fought, I believe he fought Hoist first. And he fought Hoist way back in the day. Hoist uh, made a mistake of wearing a gi, I think. I hit with gi pants into the match. Whatever it was, it helped. Sakuraba essentially took advantage of the situation. I think it was a gi, gi pants, not a gi top. Um, Sakuraba was also one of these guys that came extremely well prepared, picked a rule. Uh, he, he, he accepted the rule set that, you know, Hoist wanted, which was no time limit. So these matches, the, I think the fight was like an hour and a half or however long it was. And essentially Sakuraba didn't want to engage, right? He, he would keep it on his feet. If it got to the ground, he would threaten long enough to get out and Sakuraba is very good on the ground um so he you know he was a guy who was tough to submit and had, was better at striking and potentially better conditioned than Hoyce and it got to a point where Hoyce he would disengage and Hoyce every time Hoyce would try to get up Sakuraba would kick him in the legs and kick him in the feet to the point where I think he I believe he broke one of his feet and they continued on for another half hour to the point where Hoyce 
couldn't couldn't stand up and then they threw in a towel so then japan saw a great opportunity for you know marketing sakuraba because for those of you that don't know hickson is like is seen as like a, a fighting god in japan right there's like comic books there's toys about hickson he is like a, a living legend in japan have you ever looked to see if you could buy oh yeah comic he, books oh yeah he, you can buy comic books about hickson that, still that'd be a, a cool collector's item to have oh yeah so um you know japan and pride the promotion they're like hey you know there's a good opportunity we have a jap we have a japanese national that beat one of the legendary gracies we'll call him the gracie hunter mm-hmm. sounds pretty cool it sounds pretty cool and now much like it was in brazil if you beat one of the gracies somebody else would step up to to fight so hoyler steps up to fight hoyler was much smaller than sakurapa but again they don't give a shit <laughs> so he goes and fights um Sakuraba, and he's actually actually did pretty, pretty well in the fight. Um, not saying it's biased or anything, he, he did really, really well. And on the last, I don't know, I think the last like 20 seconds or, or something like that, he got caught in a, in a Kimura, very much like what Hanzo got caught in, except Hanzo was a straight arm. He got caught in a Kimura, and, and again, Hoyler, for those of you who know, is a freak. He's incredibly hyper-flexible. Um, if you guys want to see an idea of how flexible it is, watch him against uh, Eddie Bravo too. In Metamoris, uh, his leg is bent, like rotated and bent like 90 degrees off of what it's supposed to. He gets up at the end and he's fine. He didn't have surgery. His knee was perfectly okay. He's just a freak. Which is impressive because the, the second fight was only four or five years ago right, right. when so he's, he's older he, right. in his 40s and he still right. has that flexibility. Right. So, you know, it looked really bad from the outside. But nobody in my family was concerned. The guys that were there, you know, cornering him, because they know, like, you'd really, you'd have to go 190 degrees to break that shoulder. The referee steps in, breaks up the fight, which was against the rules, right? The rules were, unless somebody taps, the referee only stops if there's, like, a knockout or a TKO, you know? They come in, they break up the fight, they give it to Sakuraba. Again, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. You know, if the fight had gone longer, maybe he would have broken Hoyler's arm anyways. But he didn't, and Hoyler didn't tap. And with 20 seconds to go, it's much safer to call it a TKO for the safety of the fighter than it is to let it right out. And potentially, one of the referees, one of the judges, I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. gives it to, to Hoyler. So then the whole Gracie Hunter thing picks up again, because now he's beaten not one, but two Gracies. <laughs> and Hanzo's like, fuck it, I'll fight him. And he did. He fought him. He fought really well. And he got caught in the almost the almost exact same setup as Hoyler got caught in. And uh, except Hanzo is not as flexible as Hoyler. But Hanzo also gives no shits. And there's plenty of interviews with him. You guys can watch. Just look it up where... He talks about seeing his arm fully extended, knowing it was going to break, knowing that there was plenty of time left in the round. And he just said, you know, it's going to break. And not in a way that's like, oh, God, it's going to break. But in a way that's like, ah, fuck it. It's just an elbow. Yeah, nothing you can do. I mean, you can tap, but that's not not in the vocabulary. Yeah, I'm not tapping. Like, you'd have to, like, for you to beat Hensel, like, for you to physically beat him, 
you'd have to just about kill him. Like you can beat the shit out of him. He's going to keep coming. He won't stop. He's not afraid of you. He has no quit in him and he is really good. That's a horrible combination, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, you can see him talk about that fight where, like you said, he explains the, the breaking and then afterwards not showing any sign of it even hurting, which is amazing. You can see Sakuraba in the locker room talking to him. Yeah. And Henzo's laughing and like shaking his hand, has a sling on. And I, I saw him say, people said, wow, it, it didn't even, it must have been so bad it didn't hurt. And, and he, he said, oh, it hurt like an, unlike anything I've ever felt. It was it was excruciating. Oh, yeah. But I couldn't give him the satisfaction yeah. of seeing he'll, it. He'll admit it. Like, he said that was one of the worst pains I ever felt in his life. Yeah. And he was still able to just have that mental toughness to turn that yeah, off. That fuck you attitude. Or just bury it long <laughs> enough to probably get in the car or oh, the yeah. bus later and be like, oh, my God. <laughs> I don't think he ever screamed. I think he just, re- you know. Doesn't I don't think he ever regretted it, letting it break, because that's who he is. He has no regrets. You know, I just think that I think that part of him was like, man, I wish there was an easier way to fix this. <laughs> How would you describe his fighting style? So I, I've never had the opportunity to roll with, with Henzo, right? Um, so all my accounts are from watching. I've, I've been to his classes. I've seen him grapple. I've, I've seen him compete. I've been to seminars where he's teaching. I, I brought up the question of how good really is Hanzo, right? And I, and I asked that, not to him, of course, but to other family members who shall remain unnamed. And the description was almost verbatim what everybody said about him, is that he is incredibly talented. And deceivingly so, because he is so explosive and so aggressive and so not not erratic might not be the right word because he's not so erratic when you see him but unpredictable unpredictable but they said to never let the the aggressiveness the explosiveness the the unpredictability that he brought to a fight or to a match mask the fact that he had unbelievably good jiu-jitsu and he was very talented arguably one of the more talented gracies in the family it's interesting when you see him the way he carries himself and acts it's easy to think okay this guy maybe just got by because he's he's strong he's tough right and confident right but no he's that dangerous combination of all those things plus he knows what he's doing and he's talented because you can know what you're doing and i'd be talented you know (laughs) right well i think a good sign and this kind of takes us to another area a good sign that he knows what he's doing is how successful his schools have been absolutely and all the people who have come out of that it's amazing when i was looking up yeah all of his students just to see i knew he had i knew some of the famous ones i knew uh george st pierre i knew uh chris weidman but he he has i mean there's frankie edgar there's that's sarah Matt Sarah, John Danaher, right. uh, Kira Gracie, Almeida, Hajer, yeah, it's ins- it's oh, yeah. crazy. It's, yeah. it's the if you look at like the top guys in jujitsu for the past ten years, a good chunk of them are coming from arguably the the most well rounded competitive team in in martial arts in the world comes from Enzo. Argu- I mean, easily arguable. I mean, there's other. Jiu-Jitsu pure schools that may outdo them in the Jiu-Jitsu competition. There may be 
um, MMA pure schools that may outdo them, right? There may be boxing schools that may outdo them, but collectively, as in a one place to get all your training, Hanzo's is arguably the best in the planet. And just strictly, ju- if we're talking jujitsu, I mean, we've on this show talked a lot about John Danaher and Descott. It's easy to forget because John Danaher's made such a name for himself and his guys have made such a name for themselves. It's easy to forget, but they are... They're Henzo's. They're Henzo's guys. Yeah. They, yeah. What is... What do you think he... Why, why has he been so successful? What is it about him that creates this environment that people just flourish and turn into these amazing experts? Have you ever seen the, the video where he's, he's coaching Daniel Gracie for one of his fights? I don't think so. You look it up after the podcast. We can talk about it on the next one. But um, Hanzo is a guy who he wants to see everybody. I don't know if happy is the right word, because I think he believes people should, you know, win their happiness, right? Be achieve what they need to achieve to be happy, right? But he wants everybody to be successful, right? So he he looks at, at let's say, a guy like John Danaher, who is fascinated about the mechanics and about jujitsu, who wants to be this incredible technician he's going to support that right he sees a guy like frankie edgar who wants to fight mma and be successful in mma he's going to support that right he sees a guy like gordon ryan who you know other than a high school you know doesn't have any education has never really worked truly worked other than competitive jiu-jitsu and he says i'm going to support that you know he has guys who you know, our, our market, you know, who, who do different fields, doctors, lawyers, cops, and he supports everybody. He wants everybody to be successful. And he's going to be the first person to help you and help you achieve to the best of his ability. If he can help you, he can hook you up with somebody. If he can, you know, help you get started, if he can help you stay afloat, whatever, whatever he can do, he will do. He's also the first guy to beat the fuck out of you for, you know, giving up or faltering or having self-doubt on this goal that you want to achieve like if you want to be a world champion you're telling me you want to be you want to be a world champion he'll take care of you he'll make sure and i'm not talking about financially i'm talking about like he'll make sure that he's there he's pushing you every day he's gonna make sure that there's people that are keeping you accountable that you're training hard that you're doing whatever that you need to do in order to be successful but if you show up one day and you're like man i'm kind of sore today you know i'm kind of tired Maybe I'll take it easy today. That's not going to fly. You told him your goal was to be a world champion. What kind of talk is that? Mm. You know, he will tear you a new one. And if you can't hack it, if you can't have Hanzo when he's, you know, giving it to you straight, you can't have Hanzo when he's, you know, trying to help you. Sure. So I think the, the, the combination of I want to help you and I won't let you quit is very attractive to people. I mean, how many people have you met that will support you in achieving your goals and will be there and and be blunt with you when you're fucking up instead of just saying, oh, I know bad things happen. It's okay. Right. That's a tough person to find. Yeah. It's a very attractive quality. Most people that are that way aren't as charismatic. They're just seen as dicks. Well, that's probably one of the secrets to him being successful is he has... Th- that right there you can get from different people but they may not have the polish and the attractive personality that right. the, keep people around and right. make those close bonds the, the charming and the yeah is there anything stylistically 
that you've noticed between all the people who come from Henzo's schools? Well, they're very diverse. I mean, if you look at the jiu-jitsu guys that come out of him, like, you know, Almeida and um, Donahue, you look at Matt Sarah, all these guys have very different styles. One area that they all tend to be very, very, I'm not going to say adept because they may not all be necessarily equally adept, but that they're all very well versed in is is guillotines. Hanzo is arguably the best guillotine guy on the planet to this day. And uh, that will rub off. You know, if you get a guy who's such an expert, look at Donaher, he's a leg lock expert. All of his guys, none of those guys are slouches with leg locks. Mm. They may not be as good as a particular member, but they're all good. Right. <laughs> so we're getting to a point where I'd say cut off because we have not told any like crazy Henzo stories. Oh. There, there hasn't been. There, I feel like we haven't cracked the surface yet. Oh, no, there's a lot of good ones. So this might be, this, this was kind of like a a look over, uh, an overview of kind of some of the fights he's been in, just what makes him special on like a technical level. I think we could probably get another episode out of this. Oh, easily one or two more. Oh, yeah, there's so much. There's so much about Henzo. Let's do that. Let's let, let, let's call this the end of this one, and the next episode we will we will delve into a whole other arena. We're gonna switch over to a listener email. Oh, by the way, this is. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm so I'm so amateur right now I, I usually i'll pick up and know what you're saying but uh this is just jujitsu podcast i'm uh, andrew desimony with carly Gracie. and if you want to email us you can send it to just jujitsu podcast at gmail.com thank you yeah. you know why that is right why that happened why is that because it's really hot in here <laughs> <laughs> it, it is I, I i apologize the next time you come here it will not only be cool but i will have a cool towel that i'll put around the back of your neck. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, I may even hire like a neighbor kid to just come and like dab uh, you every no, once in a while. No, it's no, it's kind of weird. And that is weird. Yeah. And there aren't kids in this neighborhood. No, no. I've <laughs> we seen, talked about that last. Yeah, I've seen the gangs in your neighborhood. Yeah. <laughs> My parents, who God bless them, listen to this because they don't do any jujitsu, but they they support <laughs> their son and listen to to the they nice. they laughed. My dad's like, you better hope your neighbors don't listen. I'm like, I think that's a pretty safe bet. I think that's a safe bet too. If you're my neighbor. And you're listening right now. <laughs> I apologize. Which side? Which gang are you on? <laughs> yeah, just yeah. Whatever <laughs> gang you're on, please tell them I'm cool with them. I'll bring them some Werther's Originals. <laughs> All right. So this week's email comes from Ben. Ben emails us and says he had a calf injury that knocked him. Well, we'll step back. He says he's a fairly new white belt that started training back in April. He had a calf injury that knocked him out of the gym for two months, but he's back on the mats now and feels like he forgot everything that he learned when he started. His question is, do we think paying for one-on-ones with a higher belt is worth it for a newbie to try and jumpstart their learning and fundamentals, or should they just keep showing up to group class? He said he's heard mixed things of people saying that he won't learn anything in one-on-ones and it's a waste of money. Uh, and others saying that supplementing regular group sessions with one-on-ones is very beneficial. I guess, I think I know what you're gonna say. You're gonna say one-on-one privates are a waste of time, they're garbage, never do them. Is that right? Well, 
the the answer is kind of mixed <laughs> it really kind of depends you know so if if you so because i've had students who cannot come to the group class right where they they don't doesn't fit their schedule they have prior commitments so all they do is private classes and they gain a tremendous amount of um technical knowledge very quickly because that's all they're getting right technical knowledge like they're reading that manual over and over and over again and they really understand it but ultimately there is a uh, they, their growth gets stunted because they don't get to try it out on somebody that's resisting right imagine if imagine if um a white belt does only privates with me and i teach him how to do an arm bar Right, and we spend six weeks doing two private classes a week for six weeks on that armbar. He's going to be in, an incredible technician with that armbar. He's still a white belt that will not get that armbar on me, right? Mm. So, even if we roll for those six weeks, what are the odds that he gets that armbar on me? Very, very, very insignificant, right? So, I have two options then. When, when I'm rolling with that white belt in that private class, either I crush his dreams every day and he goes home going, man, these goddamn private classes are worthless. I cannot do anything. Or I allow him to get those arm bars, right? I allow I put myself in a situation where I'm vulnerable. I allow him to set it up. I even allow him to finish, right? And he may understand that I'm letting him do those things or maybe he doesn't. It depends on the personality, right? So at the end of those six weeks, he's like, I can armbar people. And then they get a, a, a white belt that's been in class who's been fighting for his life to survive the blue belts and purple belts in, in a regular class. Those two white belts meet and they go to grapple. The white belt that has real life, you know, resistance and fighting and, and he understands like, it doesn't always have to be about being a pretty technique. You just have to make it work. The same thing with an escape. Sometimes you just have to get it out of there. He will trump the highly technical white belt, right? So at that stage, then it's a waste of time because you're spending all this money, but you're not getting any real practice, right? On the other side, if you are a, let's say, purple belt and you have a lot of time and a lot of experience and you've battled tacit techniques, you know how people that are resisting, how they're gonna feel, and you come in for a private class, let's say the same six weeks of private classes, two classes a week, just to work on that specific armbar. Well, now you're refining something that's already there. Okay. Right, so the best way to make use of your private, and this is also very important that your instructor's on the same page. A lot of instructors aren't, very good at teaching I, I hate to say that out loud but it's true and if you come to a private class and your instructor is always teaching completely different things that are not um cohesive they have no flow held them and i even pertain to your ability level it's just something that they want to teach you're gonna have a harder time learning hard time remembering a harder time connecting the dots and then you if you don't have any real life experience, then you're not learning and you have no experience to back it up. That's a problem. On the other hand, if you're a white belt 
and your instructor has a plan for you. He says, hey, we're going to work half guard today. We're going to work side mount today. We're going to work top mount today. And he builds those systems for you. And you're attending the group class. You're, you're having an input of knowledge and then giving yourself time in the group classes to battle test those skills. And then you can troubleshoot and get better. That's really the way to make the most efficient, you know, form of learning as far as like private classes go. It's a good way to utilize them. That's the first time you answered one of our listener emails without throwing a little bit of shade. Oh, I was going to throw shade, but then I was oh, like... Oh, you, did, you didn't want to? Uh, I can. You still have time if you'd I like mean, to. if you started training in April and it's August now, that's four months. You got injured, so you're out two months. So really, you've had two months of training. You didn't forget anything. You still haven't learned anything. <laughs> <You> never do <knew> anything. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, just, you bought a gi, you know? <laughs> So he forgot how to tie this belt is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> uh, thank you, Ben. Oh, and I forgot to say Ben gave us his Zodiac too, Sagittarius. Oh, oh okay. Which I wonder if Aries and how, the, how an Aries and Sagittarius would oh, get along. Jesus. Let's just see real quick. <laughs> Aries and Sagittarius. Ooh, is a great match and you have much in common. You're both highly adventurous and curious, active, spontaneous, outgoing, and fun loving. Not many other signs can keep up with either of you, but in each other, you've not only found someone who can, but who will enjoy the challenge of doing so. So Ben, Quirler may have, uh, may have, gave you a little bit of attitude there at the end, but that's just the way your guys' relationship <laughs> is. And you know that it's built on a cosmic foundation that cannot be shaken. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I didn't think of myself as loving, but okay. <laughs> or fun loving. Yeah. Or, or a good person. Wait, it didn't say that. Yeah. Okay. That's you. Yeah. You're saying that. <laughs> that's right. Okay. Well, oh, before we go, uh, we just need to do a quick recap of our um, story last time where we left oh off God, with you being, doing this? We, we left off with you being oh, taken away by, please, please don't interrupt me. <laughs> uh, left off with you being taken away by a falcon, I believe, uh, as you were walking down the street with your wife, uh, guy. Wife, we were not walking down the street. I was teaching a guy in a corner. Right. A guy, you went in the alley, taught him how to do a Kimura. Guys came in from both sides and... Uh, that guy, you taught him how to do a Kamara. He ran, tried to help defend you, stabbed, dead. Uh, but you're like, cool. He kind of, he, he, he bought, my, bought me time. Bought me time, which is kind of callous. Um, <laughs> and then you you started to run towards another guy who caused, called his falcon, grabbed you by the head. Now you're being lifted up into the air. You're soaring probably about 10 feet up. You're going up, up, up above the buildings, out of the alleyway, and you feel this excruciating pain in the top mm -hmm. of your head. You pass out. You wake up. You don't know how much time has passed. No. You're in a dark room. You're belly down. Your face is on. It feels like maybe some dirty, matted down shag carpet. Okay. You hear like dogs barking in the back. Uh -huh. All right, you open, you open your eyes, and you walk up to a door that has bars on it. Okay. You can see a guy standing outside with a machete. What do you, uh, you want to say anything? Are you? Yeah, I mean, that's what the fuck's happening. Uh, what the fuck's happening? You say that, he mm -hmm. turns around and uh, says, hey, shut the fuck up. And he bangs on the, the, the door with the hilt of yeah. his, of his machete, walks away, and then you hear a guy next to you go, ah, all right. Welcome. I've been here for a while. 
Yeah, and, and I'm so spiteful that I would I would be like, ooh, you banged on the grave. <laughs> oh, okay, so all right, that's good. I'm just saying. He turns around. He turns around. And he goes, oh, you think you're? We got a funny guy. Walks up, unlocks the, uh, nah, the door, way out. opens the door. <laughs> okay, opens the door, grabs your hand, and he's starting to pull you out. He wants to take you somewhere else. At any point, stop me if you're doing if you want to do something. The so, old old guy that's been there for a while. Mm-hmm. You know, starts screaming because he's like, you're letting him go. That's not fun. That's not cool. Okay, you can't tell me what other people do. You can oh, only tell only you what me you. what I Yes, I am oh, God here. Oh, okay. You, you are okay. yourself, all oh, right? Okay, all right, all right. <laughs> so, uh, so that guy's just sitting there kind of watching what's going on. He, he uh-huh. takes your hand. He's walking you out. He walks into the hallway. So it, I tackle him down. You tackle him. Okay, boom. You tackle him down. He falls face down, drops the uh, the machete, and you're both in like a movie where you're like crawling. He, he's crawling for the machete. I'm just choking him at this point. You're just choking him. <laughs> if he's crawling away. He gave up his back. That's like a, it's like a white belt one hundred and one. I know. That's it, well, they don't do that in movies because it's not as theatrical. It's not as fun no. if there's a gun on the ground and one person starts to crawl towards and it. Jumps on their back and then you just choke them and the yeah. guy grabs the uh, the person and grabs the gun. Yeah, that's not as fun. So, all right, so you start to choke him. He he he's out. So yeah. he, you you pick up the sword. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't want to tell you what to do. Yeah, I pick up the machete. You pick up the machete. There's a and door. I cut, I cut his Achilles so he can't get up. Oh, that's that's cold, but that's also very, it's a, there's a cold logic to that. Yeah, I don't have to kill him. He just can't chase me. Okay, well, you have at the end of this hallway, there's a door. It's closed, and you also have this other guy who's hanging out in that room. What, what do uh-huh. you want to do? Well, tell the guy to go look for keys and open the door. You, you haven't even tried the door. Maybe it's unlocked. It's unlocked already, but I'm going to have that guy open the door first. Okay, man, you are a psychopath. <laughs> All right, you you have you have that guy walk up to the door. He opens it, looks around. Says, I think we're good, and he walks out. And he walks into that room. Do right. you, you follow him? Yeah, absolutely, because it's maybe a way out now. You go into this room, and it looks like a veterinarian's. <laughs> office that it's it's like the back area so there are just cages uh-huh. and there are dogs and cats they all look like zombified uh-huh. decaying and they're like starting to like, like freak out and hit the uh-huh. the gates of the cages and the gates of the cages start to shake and some start to open uh-huh. and that's where we're gonna end today okay all right. All right. You get, you're getting the hang of this. You're slitting Achilles. You're using human shields. I don't know. I don't know where this is all going to end up, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't be surprised if you reach genocide or something like that. Oh my god. <laughs> all right. Well, that's a good way to end this episode. We will see everyone next week. Oh Jesus.